Hola, yo soy Margarita y estás escuchando Limehouse Podcast. This is Paddy Ashdown and you're listening to the Limehouse Podcast. What a good name that is. Hi, I'm Tom Brake and this is the Limehouse Podcast. Hello, this is Nick Clegg and you're listening to the Limehouse Podcast. I hope you enjoy it. Because I'm not persuaded by the case for war. This is what positive politics can do. Right, well, welcome back to the Limehouse Podcast, guys. This this is a... It's not necessarily a Christmas special, but it's so close to Christmas that we'll just... We'll call it a Christmas special, but it's not. Do you feel special? We'll call it... If you feel special, then it's special. I hope you've been well. It, it's, it's a funny old time for us uh, at the moment. We're trying to sort of collate all the kind of crazy stuff that's been going on this year all the um, uh, interesting interviews we've had uh, and what have you and we, we're bringing Elaine and, and George into a panel chat for the next podcast which will be coming out very very soon uh, in the next day or two I should imagine and we're going to be talking about all the wonderful episodes that have happened on the Limehouse podcast this year not all of them obviously because we haven't got 48 hours um, yeah, so just the, I suppose the best of, and we, we, we juggle around the events of the year, you know, Trump, Corbyn, May, Vince Cable, that kind of stuff, and, and try and review it for you. So I'll try and be really brief for you guys. Okay, so this week we have Peter Tatchell. It's a great, it's a great chat. I think you're really going to enjoy it. You're going to get loads out of it. I, I personally, I spent a, about a week researching Peter. And I have to confess, my ignorance was was uh, quite sizable until I realised just quite so much he's done. There's so much he has achieved, the bravery and strength he shows. And and I I, I he I, I tell him, you know, like you're a bit of a role model. I say, look, it's 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 true, man. And he completely refutes it in a very sort of humble manner. But he he's a total role model and 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 someone that in in the years to come will all. Um, look back on his his life and i I'm, I'm telling you right now there's a freaking movie in it he what a what a life what a role model what a guy and you're going to hear about some of his, the stuff that he's achieved and some of the stuff that he's done where he's really put his neck out on the line and in most cases taken severe beatings and and and, and unbelievable violence that has been perpetrated on him so anyway guys Here's this week's episode. If you do feel like sharing it, please do. As always, the support is so warmly received. And we've got the uh, Patreon website, uh, patreon.com forward slash the Limehouse podcast, where you can um, help push this show financially, help give us a backing and take us to the next next level. And it really means a lot, you know, because I know some of you have been with us this entire freaking year and oh my god it's been one heck of a year now so anyway with without any further ado um here's peter tatchell i hope you enjoy it and if you do hit us up on twitter give us a give us a shout out at limehouse pod and i am dad's dance best on on twitter actually i just thought i'd mention that anyway here's peter take care look after yourself see you on the other side goodbye so when did you first start campaigning when did you become politically active well i can remember when i was 11 years old being shocked and horrified by the bombing of a black church in alabama in the united states in 1963 when four young girls about my own age were murdered by white racists that profoundly disturbed me 
and it inspired my interest in and support for the black civil rights movement. But my first activism was not until I was 15 years old in 1967 in my hometown of Melbourne, Australia. Uh, Ronald Ryan, a prison escapee, had allegedly shot dead a prison warder during the escape. But I read a report in the local newspaper which indicated that from where Ronald Ryan was standing and where the warder was standing, he couldn't have fired the fatal bullet because the angles and trajectory of the bullet through the warder's body didn't match where Ronald Ryan had been standing when he supposedly fired that fatal shot. Mm. Um, It motivated me to get involved in the campaign to stop Ronald Ryan from being hanged because he was sentenced to die and to also support the campaign against capital punishment. Um, Sadly, he was hanged anyway and that made me a lifelong skeptic of authority. Mm. I thought to myself, how could the government, the police and the courts allow a man to hang where there was at least some doubt as to his guilt? where the evidence did not conclusively stack up that he was the guilty man. And that prompted me to question other things I'd never questioned before, like the mistreatment of the indigenous first Australians, the Aboriginal people, like Australia's involvement in the Vietnam War alongside America. And then a bit later when I was 17 and realised I was gay, uh, against the appalling ill-treatment of LGBT people Uh, which in those days included prison and sometimes enforced psychiatric treatment. But here here we are now in sunny 2017 and everything's great, right? Not quite. (laughs) 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 Not quite by a long shot, (laughs) which is why I'm currently traveling about five or six different campaigns simultaneously, often working with and supporting other human rights defenders, sometimes in very dire, adverse circumstances, like in Syria, Zimbabwe, Russia and quite a few other countries as well. Yeah. So you had obviously a lot of involvement with with Robert Mugabe, obviously not involvement, you know, trying to bring him to justice. How, what was going through your mind when that when finally that day had come he he was pushed to one side. When Mugabe finally resigned, I felt very mixed emotions. On the one hand, I was glad that the tyrant had fallen. Mm. On the other hand, I was so sad that so many thousands of people died in the process of seeking to end his rule and to get back to democracy and human rights. Um, Thousands died, thousands. Um, And, you know, his demise will not bring them back. So I feel great sorrow. Uh, I also feel that um, although Mugabe has gone, the system he created is still intact. Mm. And all the people around him who are now in power or still in power, they are deeply implicated, just like he was, in that mass murder, in the torture, the disappearances, the the seizure of both white and black farms, Mm. which went straight into the hands of Mugabe's cronies. Mm. The system's changed. No. <laughs> no. The leaders changed. Yes. We have to, you know, recognize that much more needs to be done. Yeah. Since Mugabe was deposed, not a single political prisoner has been released. The secret police has not been disbanded. 
and state censorship of the media continues. Mm. There will no be, not no be no real meaningful change mm. until there are free and fair elections. And so I stand in solidarity with all those Zimbabweans, white and black, mm. who want free and fair elections. Yeah, no, absolutely. This is one of those things, isn't it? The power, the power vacuum that sort of doesn't seem to to have happened. It just seems that there's a solidity, a solidifying of the people that aren't. Mugabe's not there, but like you said, those people are still there. Those implementations are still there. It, it, what what is what would what would, what's cause and effect? How would we get real change there in that country in Zimbabwe? How would we, how how's that even how, how's it going to come around? Other than obviously the usual channels, international sort of pressure and what have you, political pressure. Well, you're right. The change of power has been a change within the ruling elite, all of whom are implicated in mass human rights abuses, corruption, and nepotism. Uh, the only substantive change that will follow is when there are genuinely free and fair elections, uh, preferably under international supervision to make sure that they are legitimate. Yeah. But even that will only be the starting point because then there has to be the dismantling of the repressive state apparatus that Mugabe built up over the years. Yeah. I say that with some degree of, I suppose, depression and sorrow because... As we all know, uh, President Mugabe started off as a good guy. Yeah. He was a liberation hero. Yeah. And I was involved in supporting the campaign against white minority rule in Zimbabwe. I, as a young student, helped fundraise to buy medical kits for uh, people living in the liberated areas. Yeah. So for me, overthrowing white minority rule was very important yeah. and Mugabe was the lead liberation leader. There were others like Joshua Nakomo, but mm. Mugabe and his forces really played the key role in ending that apartheid-style system. Yeah. So you can imagine my horror and shock when just a few years after coming to power, Mugabe turned into something that he'd never previously been. You know, I have a copy of his party's political program from 1972. No liberal progressive person, no Democrat could disagree with it. All the principles, you know, freedom of the press, the right to protest, uh, free and fair elections, it's all enshrined there. Yeah. And I met many of these people during the liberation struggle, and I know they genuinely believed in it. And yeah, that, that was a sincere commitment. But then power went to Mugabe's head. I think he felt threatened, threatened by Joshua Nakomo yeah. the other main liberation leader in particular. Yeah. And so, of course, he unleashed the notorious 5th Brigade, trained by North Korea, into the Matibili land and Midland regions of Zimbabwe, where estimates range up to probably about 20,000 people were killed because they were supporters of the opposition. Mm. 20,000 black Africans killed yeah. by Mugabe. Now, that makes him rank in terms of the killing of black Africans, far worse than Ian Smith, mm -hmm. or even P.W. Bota in South Africa under apartheid. Uh, if you think about it, the whole world was horrified when in 1960, South African police opened fire on protesters at Sharpville. They murdered 69 black South Africans protesting against the tyranny of the past laws. Mm -hmm. The world was aghast. Yet what Mugabe did in Matabililand and Midlands 
was the equivalent of a shark film massacre every single day for more than nine months. And I've got to say at the time, hardly anybody kicked up a fuss. Yeah. Uh, initially, it wasn't known immediately. The scale wasn't known immediately. That's fair enough. But a few years later, it was abundantly clear the enormity of this massacre. Mm. And yet most people in the world and even in Africa just looked the other way. They gave him a free pass because he'd been a liberation hero. Yeah. And I just don't buy that logic or that reasoning. Mm. You know, no one has a free pass when it comes to human rights abuses, no matter how glorious and important and significant their previous activism well, might we, be. Well, we can point to Aung San Suu Kyi at the moment, I suppose, in that. I, don't, I mean, I totally, I don't even want to believe it. I think like most people talking about political awakenings and stuff, I was, I was a little later, perhaps I was more like 18, 19, I read a book by a guy called James Maudsley called The Heart Must Break about um, his deliberate uh, detention in Sing Sing prison. Or uh, He spent a year there, um, went out and distributed uh, propaganda leaflets for pro-democracy for the NLD. The story is amazing. He tells of his struggle and inside the prison and also by Aung San Suu Kyi. And I cannot believe that she's turned... What is she? Do you, do you have any idea of what's going on over there and your insight into it? Well, it appears that her commitment to the principle of universal human rights was very weak and partial. Yeah. Um, she had a very particular nationalist agenda, uh, which did not apparently include the Rohingya people. Mm. And uh, whatever one thinks about the limits of her power and she is rather constrained because the military yeah. in Myanmar are the power behind the throne she's a figurehead but even so figureheads can speak out yeah. and she should have spoken out she should have appealed for an end to the violence yeah. against the Rohingya she should have um, appealed for a peaceful negotiated solution she didn't do any of those minimal elementary things mm. and that's why people like Archbishop Desmond Tutu have been quite right to call her out. I'd like to talk about your your foundation and the work you do within schools. Would you say that SRE, um, sorry, which stands for Sex Relationship Education, would you say that's a human right? Absolutely. You know, the whole purpose of a school is to uh, teach young people the knowledge, the skills they need for adult life to prepare them for the future. Mm. And sex and relationships are a part of everyone's life. And for most people, they're a very important part of our lives. Mm. Yet so many young people end up in, going into adulthood without a real proper knowledge of sex and relationships. Yeah. I actually believe that not only is it vital that you know kids be given much more explicit advice about uh, abuse issues. I don't think it's good enough to say, oh, well, if, you, if you're being abused or pestered, phone Childline. That is not good enough. Uh, we've got to inculcate young kids with the confidence, the assertiveness to say no to unwanted sexual overtures and to report abusers, mm. to not feel a sense of sexual shame that leads them to remain silent. Mm. And it's all this nonsense, all this guilt about sex 
that results in many young people not speaking out because they feel ashamed of what has been done to them. Mm. If we get over that sense of guilt and shame, more young people would speak out and more abusers would be caught and stopped. Yeah, no, absolutely. I did, just before the thought uh, exits my little brain, I was, I just wanted to know like what, um, what positive feedback from schools you've had, like students, kids that have said, any real breakthroughs, even when you're there on the day giving the talk? I often um, get feedback from boys, things like, they say things like, no one ever told us about the clitoris. Uh, and these, some, of the, some of these are quite, you know, 14 and 15 year old boys. So just to know the basics of male and female anatomy, it, 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 it's, it's a very fundamental thing. And to think that young kids to this day, or some of them, yeah. are not aware of some of the basics, that's really bad because how can they please themselves or please their partners right, yeah. if they don't know the basics of the anatomy? That, that's one level. Another level is just, you know, young people saying to me things like, well, no one ever explained to me what do I do because my boyfriend won't wear a condom. The teachers have said we should all wear condoms, but my boyfriend won't. And this, this girl said to me, no one's told me what to do. I don't know what to do. And I've said, well, have you thought about alternatives? You know, maybe you can find ways you know, oral sex is much less risky it's not it's not no risk but it's much less risky and secondly um you know mutual masturbation can be can be fun and a lot of guys can like that as well yeah. and she sort of said oh no one no one ever mentioned that it's this whole timidity about sex mm. in schools what sex and relationship education there is mostly is about warning young people about all the dangers of sex and of course, there are some dangers and risks. Mm. And it's right, young people should be warned. But no one's telling them about the joy and the pleasure, the happiness that sex can give and how to please themselves and how to please their partners so they have a happy, fulfilled, sustainable relationship. This just strikes me as being an obvious thing to do. It's not about promoting sex or encouraging sex. It's making sure that when kids have sex, yeah. it's safe doesn't put them or their partners at risk and that both partners not just one both partners recognize the responsibility of mutual fulfillment yeah. it's not about me 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 and what i want it's about sharing yeah and just um in terms of like homophobic language which just seems to be part and parcel of my school um my school days i've argued for decades that as well as mandatory sex and relationship education in schools there should also be mandatory equality and diversity lessons in schools we know that no child is born bigoted no child comes out of the womb with prejudice that is learned behavior uh, you know other young kids learn from parents or other adults neighbors relatives whatever yeah, yeah. so it's learned behavior we can also teach young people about you know non-prejudice teach them an understand and acceptance of difference and diversity yeah. so I believe that equality and diversity lessons should cover the whole range of prejudice yeah. from racism to misogyny disabilism sexuality gender identity mm -hmm. etc yeah. and it should start from the very first year of primary school and continue throughout a child's life through their secondary years okay. and it shouldn't be like once a year it should be you know once a fortnight once a month so it's, it's treated as a serious subject and it should also be subject to examination because if it isn't an exam subject, 
neither teachers nor pupils will take it seriously. And I think, in addition, it auto, also ought to be a requirement that uh, people have to uh, produce their equality and diversity exam results when applying for university and applying for jobs. Because we don't want young people going into university with bigoted ideas and making life hell for other students. And we don't want them going into the workplace and taking disruptive, negative, hostile ideas, which damage and harm the working environment and make other work colleagues feel uncomfortable. The right to be different is a fundamental human right. Yeah. And apart from anything else, it would be incredibly boring if we were all the same. But I did, I did want to touch on the Austria and uh, Australia who have legalised, for want of a better expression, uh, gay gay marriage. That's progress, right? <laughs> At last, <laughs> long overdue, yeah. about bloody time. Yeah. I mean, to think that major, significant, long-standing democracies like Australia and Austria have taken all this time, and Germany was only earlier this year, mm. it's appalling. You know, it's, it's, it's an occasion or a moment for applause and congratulations at one level, but also an occasion for a sigh of despair at another that it's taken this long. You know, th these are not states that have emerged from communism or some other kind of tyranny yeah. after decades and decades. These are long-standing democratic nations. My template as a teenager was the black civil rights movement in America. Those people were my models, my inspirations. Mm. In terms of LGBT plus activism, there was none when I was growing up in Melbourne, Australia. Yeah, okay. There were no gay organizations, not even any helplines or counseling services. Mm. Absolutely nothing. But I can remember in 1969, at the age of 17, when I realized I was gay, I thought to myself, I've been campaigning against capital punishment for Aboriginal rights, against the war in Vietnam, I also want to campaign for my rights as a gay man. And I had to do it by myself because there was no one else. I, mean, I tried the idea of setting up a gay rights organization and the few gay people I knew were all too afraid because in those days in the state of Victoria, Australia, you could be jailed for many years and forced to undergo compulsory psychiatric treatment yeah. because you were deemed to be sick as a gay person. So there was nothing much I could do. I wrote letters to the newspapers, things like that, but that was, the, that was the limit. But I remember thinking to myself, I haven't got a mentor. I haven't got an organization that I can join. I've never heard about anybody in the world doing anything on gay activism, apart from I had heard that stage. By that stage, um, I had heard that there had been you know, some famous people in history, like Oscar Wilde, but that, that's all. So I had no reference point, so I had to start from scratch and so I thought well why not look at the black civil rights movement as the template yeah why not look at that look at look at the way they did it for african-american people so I remember thinking at the age of 17 gay people are an oppressed minority just like black people you know we're not mentally ill we're not perverts or you know criminals or, or sinners or whatever we are an oppressed minority like african-americans and we too have a just claim for equality and non-discrimination. Mm. And then I remember thinking to myself, well, looking at the experience of the black civil rights movement, it took them about half a century. That's probably how long it's gonna take 
to win LGBT plus rights in countries like Australia, Britain, and the United States. Mm. So I thought to myself, boy, half a century, I'm 17, 50 more years or more. I thought to myself, well, I will do my bit. Yeah. I will do my bit. That's a long, long, long time to wait or, you know, to have to battle, but I will do my bit. Yeah. Together with others. And, you know, I'll find a way of getting others involved eventually. Um, and it's more or less turned out to be... <laughs> it, it was a guesstimate, but it's, it's more or less true, you know. Yeah, yeah. Broadly, within that 50 years, we now have pretty much uh, equal rights in Australia, the United States, Britain, and a lot of other Western countries. So, um, it's a, it's yeah, a, I'm, I'm gratified, yeah. but I'm not complacent. There's always still extra things to do. You know, yeah. trans people do not have the same level of respect and understanding as LGB people. Um, trans people, in terms of their rights, have, have lagged behind, and we have to address that. The Gender Recognition Act in Britain needs to change to make it self-defining, not, you know, everything done through the medical profession and medical authorization. But, you know, we have made progress, and that's a huge tribute to the many tens of thousands of LGBT plus people yeah. who've been part of that campaign. And, of course, very importantly, our straight friends and allies. Without them, we could not have won. You know, we're a tiny minority, you know, 5 or 10%. Yeah. You know, we needed straight support, and eventually we got it. And I'm, I'm immensely appreciative of that solidarity that most straight people now give to our community. So in 80, is it, was it 83 that you ran, you ran uh, in this borough of, Lo of London? And I know that obviously that, that it was a, 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 a horrible uh, campaign run against, run against you. I just wanted to touch on the, was it the suggestion that Momentum are gonna run a deselection uh, process on on uh, councillors, London councillors here that aren't of the Corbyn persuasion, momentum persuasion. Back then, it, you know, we had extreme lefts within the Labour Party, and they've kind of circulated back now, I suppose, in a way. It's very secular at the moment. Can you see, can you really see that brand of of politics coming coming to the fore? If, if there is in a, another general election or e indeed in the London council elections next next May? Well, first of all, there's a lot of misinformation and some of it quite malicious about momentum, about Jeremy Corbyn and about the overall direction of the Labour Party. If you want to go back to the 1980s, please, please, yes. uh, when I and many others on the left were demonised as extremists, all our supposed extremist policies are now the law of the land. Even the Conservatives support them. Yeah. Same-sex marriage, a negotiated political settlement in Ireland, devolution of power to Scotland, Wales and London. Yeah. Um, all these issues and many, many others. A national minimum wage. I mean, I, I remember being denounced as a left-wing extremist for saying there should be a national minimum wage, yeah. for saying there should be one single equality law to protect everyone in society against discrimination. Even the Labour Party was refused to accept that when I put it to their policy proposal uh, uh, mandate in 1987. Mm. But it's now the law, it's the Equality Act of 2010. So I don't buy this argument that all this stuff in the 1980s was all extremist. Mm. You know, it was for the most part um, 
rock-solid democratic social justice policy that is now accepted by the broad consensus, including conservatives. Mm -hmm. um, what some Labour Party activists are trying to do now, through momentum and just as independents, is hold to account local Labour councils. Mm. So in parts of London, there are Labour councils that are doing the Tories' dirty work. Mm. These are not Labour councils at all. In, in Haringey, yeah. uh, in Southwark, you've got Labour councillors hand in glove with property developers forcing out local working class people. Well, in Bermondsey, in, Bermondsey in particular, with Millwall Football Club as well, that was a bit shocking. Well, here, here at the Elephant and Castle where I live, uh, the Haygate council estate was bulldozed by a Labour council. Hmm. 1,200 council flats were demolished and the people who lived there forced out all over the place. That site comprised 25 acres right by the Elephant Castle tube stations and shopping centre, 1.3 miles from the Houses of Parliament. The Labour Council sold off that 25 acres for £50 million and then gave the developers a £50 million handout mm. to clean up the site. So developers got 25 acres for £35 million. Private sites adjacent of an acre or less than an acre sold for £30 to £40 million each. This was a Labour council. In my view, those councils should be put on trial and should be behind bars. What they've done to the local working class community is something that not even the Tories had ever contemplated or proposed. Do you think there's some level of complacency in there? Because there has... Well, let me finish the point. Sorry, yeah, go on. That is why many grassroots activists in the Labour Party mm. want to get rid of some councillors. Mm. It's because they have behaved so appallingly, had total disregard for fundamental principles of fairness, never mind Labour Party policy. Mm. So I am totally in support, even though I'm not a member of the Labour Party, although I'm still on the left, I'm in the Green Party now, but I am in total support of people in the Labour Party who are trying to get rid of councillors who have gone against party policy and principles and who are selling out working class people and are working hand in glove with filthy, rich, greedy developers. Yeah. The deal that the Labour Council signed off with the developers, Lend-Lease, was they're going to build 3,000 new luxury flats for the rich. Mm. The Labour Council promised before the deal was signed that 35% would be affordable. Now I think the cheapest flat, a one-bedroom flat, is about five hundred and fifty or six hundred thousand. Yeah, we've highlighted that. Uh, actually. Yeah. yeah, and on top of that, out of these three thousand flats, only eighty-two are social housing. Eighty-two to replace one thousand two hundred council houses. No wonder there's a housing crisis. It's not just the Tory cuts and the Tories' failure to invest. It's Labour councils. Labour councils 
doing these dastardly evil things against working class people. The deal has been done and it can't be undone. Every single flat has been sold to a foreign investor. Yeah, yeah, oh yeah. Like China, Malaysia, Taiwan, Japan, whatever. I don't know the entire list, but you know. Yeah. So these are either going to be empty most of the year or they'll be used as, you know, for rent income. They'll be, they'll be rented out. and But this is forcing up rents. Yeah. It's forcing up house prices. So one thing I've argued for a long time is there should be, like Iceland and I think the city of Vienna and Austria, there should be a prohibition on foreign-based people buying property in London. If you are living in an overseas country, you should not be able to buy um, housing property yeah. in Britain. Nowhere in Britain. They have a similar system, I think, in Guernsey or Jersey. Uh, Jersey, Jersey or Guernsey, I think, has a similar system. Yeah. Um, because they recognise that if they allow it, it's going to um, price out local people. Yeah. That it'll force up prices. And I'm not saying that foreign investors buying up property is the only cause of house price inflation. But it is certainly a factor. It's yeah. certainly one of them. Well, so I, I would I have a prohibition. If you're a resident overseas, you cannot buy housing property in Britain. And if you've come here from overseas, mm. you can't buy property here at least for, to, say, two years. Yeah. And that would dampen the hyperinflation of the housing market and mean more properties available for people here what drew you to the green party i know that um I, I touched on voting reform earlier that for me would be one of the bigger sort of attractions i suppose as well as obviously uh, the environment but i mean what was the what was the in for you did they come to you or did they did you come to them i think it was just more attuned to my kind of politics um much more radical than labor much to the left of Labour, but in a good way, in a positive way, a credible way, a believable way. And, of course, I think it's always good to have a ginger party on the left to keep Labour in check. You don't, so you don't, believe, you don't believe Jeremy Corbyn? You don't believe where he's coming from? Or? Oh, I, th I think Jeremy Corbyn would be fantastic as Prime Minister. And, you know, I've, got, I've had some criticisms of him, as probably everyone knows, but overall, he's a really great guy, and I've known him for nearly 40 years, worked with him, and... He's often been a lone voice when others have ignored yeah. <laughs> when others have ignored important issues. He's been there, yeah. a really solid guy. But you know, I think on some issues, you know, notably on Syria, I, th I don't think he's really given the lead we expect and, and need. Uh, in particular, his failure to you know, he, he does support humanitarian aid drops, but he hasn't actually done anything to make it happen. Like he hasn't gone to Parliament and used Labour time to get a debate and vote on humanitarian aid drops to yeah. besiege cities like Aleppo and now Ghouta and the three million other Syrian civilians who are living in besieged areas. Yeah. I mean, he's a good man. Yeah. I think it's, you know, I, I fear he's, he was part of the Stop the War Coalition, which as you know, refuses to protest against the fascist regime of Assad, refuses to protest against the warmongering imperialism of Vladimir Putin in Syria. I mean, he comes out of that place. Now, I'm not damning him like I damn others, other key people and stop the war, but he is coming from a similar political trajectory. Mm. And, you know, I would have hoped that he would have distanced himself from that by supporting humanitarian aid drops, which, of course, stopped the war 
opposed the idea of Western aid drops. Yeah. They said they would not support Western aid drops yeah. because they were Western. Well, the people of Syria who are starving and dying don't care whether the aid drops are from the West, the East, the North or the South. They want aid. They want food, fuel, medical supplies. They're dying as we speak right now in Ghouta yeah. and in dozens of other towns and cities. Mm. And the bloody left in this country, which ought to be the champion of the people who are oppressed by a fascist dictator, the bloody left is doing nothing that I can see. Mm. And it makes me so furious. How can the left, of all people, fail to stand in solidarity with people who are victims of a fascist dictatorship and an imperialist regime like Russia? Russia is doing exactly in Syria what the Americans did in Cambodia and Vietnam. Yeah. Mass indiscriminate aerial bombardment. Where are the left-wing protests? What conclusion do you come to? Why isn't, where, where is the action? I don't want to generalise about the left because there are lots of good people on the left who are passionate and concerned about these issues, but they're not organising. They're not actually doing anything. Their heart's in the right place, but their actions are not. When it comes to the Stop the War Coalition and others, they're basically not... They're no longer left-wing or anti-imperialist. They're just anti-American. Mm. You know, anti-Americanism is the raison d'etre. And I'm against much of what the United States does, not just now with Trump, but before him with Obama, Bush and so on, America's record is not good. But I don't use that as the reference point for my politics. Yeah. I don't take the view that my enemy's enemy is my friend. Okay, yeah, yeah. The logic that led, led Stop the War, for example, at the time when Obama and before him Bush were thinking about attacking Iran um, over the nuclear issue, uh, stop the war organized protests mm. and I supported them I went on those protests don't attack Iran but hey that doesn't mean to say that you give a platform at that protest to an apologist for the tyrannical Iranian regime which is killing its own people which has trade union leaders and student leaders behind bars being tortured and it certainly doesn't mean that you get your stewards to go and physically manhandle and attack Iranian Democrats in the crowd supporting the call, don't attack Iran, but also demanding democracy in their country. Mm. I, mean, I saw those videos, and I, well, I saw, the, I saw the, the, the actual stewards, and I saw the video of it, attacking these Iranian leftists and Democrats who are calling for peace and human rights and democracy in Iran. Mm. Unbelievable. Yeah, yeah. I oh, just... you know, uh, the Stop the War protest against the, uh, against the Iraq war, against the American occupation in 2006 in Trafalgar Square. They had a representative of Moqtada al-Sada on the platform because he's anti-American. This is Moqtada al-Sada, the leader of the death squads, the, the Islamist death squads in Iraq. His representative was given an honoured platform at a Stop the War rally in Trafalgar Square at a time when his militias were murdering women wearing makeup mm. or women who weren't wearing the hijab, murdering liberals, Democrats, leftists, labor organizers, barbers who gave men Western haircuts, sellers of Western music, and Stop the War gave them a platform in Trafalgar Square. Unbelievable, shocking, not a, not a word of regret from them or apology ever since. They still justify giving this man a platform. If you're anti-American, you're a good guy. Yeah. You can kill your own people, you can murder socialists, trade unionists and anti-fascists, doesn't matter. You oppose the Americans, you're our mate. That's yeah. their mentality. Yeah. That is not 
socialism. It is not anti-imperialism. It is a really warped kind of politics. It's kind of like how the American sort of foreign policy kind of do their politics, really. The enemy of my enemy is my exactly, friend. Exactly. You know, they are mirroring yeah. the worst aspects <laughs> yeah. of US policy. Yeah. In the old days, we used to say, neither Washington nor Moscow. We support oppressed people. We don't support superpowers. We challenge them. Yeah. That's all gone out the window. Stop the war, quite rightly and commendably, opposes Saudi actions in Yemen and the Saudi tyranny of their own people, the imprisonment of bloggers like Raif Badawi and many others. But when do you ever see them protesting against Bashar al-Assad in Syria? Mm. You don't. And it's complete double standards. And these double standards are not only morally wrong, but they destroy the credibility of the left. Now, wonder the left isn't credible in many people's eyes because they see it as being a very selective kind of left-wing activism. You, you, you oppose Saudi, quite rightly, but you're silent about Syria and Bashar Assad. And if you don't know the full facts, it can sound very, very plausible. Mm. But I know the full facts. I've seen it with my own eyes. Peter, I believe you do. Just sitting in this room, just the weight of knowledge around me, it's not intimidating, it's just something to behold. But before... I don't have knowledge about everything. Yeah, okay, <laughs> my, yeah. my knowledge is limited and yeah. selective and, yeah. you know... I'm not a great astrophysicist. <laughs> oh, really? Oh, cool. That was my next question. So that's, uh, we're screwed and, there. And I'm not really, I know a bit about the, the war in the Congo. But I'm not a, an yeah. expert on that. I'm not, I'm not an expert on uh, the minutiae of, of, of what's happening in Tajikistan or Uzbekistan. Yeah. I know the basics. I'm not an expert. I don't claim to be. But there are some things I do know quite a lot about. Yeah. And which, from what you've heard, I do feel very passionate about. Just two, two, two minutes before we go, because you have given me a lot of times, very generous of you. This stuff you've done, the place, the, the situations you've put yourself in and the danger you've put yourself in front of, it is superhero stuff. What in the, where do you get that bravery from? It's something that pretty much everyone asks you, surely. Like how, where does that come from? Do you just, when you're doing these things, does it, for example, like being, having the shit kicked out of you by Mugabe's like henchmen, does, are you going like, is, are you an out of body experience? When you're confronting Nick Griffin, is that an out of body experience, out of body experience and something happens, something comes over you? Or? I'm just motivated by a love of other people, a love of freedom, equality and justice. So when I see something wrong, I feel motivated to try and do something to stop it. Hmm. And I may or may not succeed, but at least I'll have a try. Now, I don't see myself as brave. Um, brave was the two million British men who saw frontline service during the Second World War against the Nazis. That was brave. I know, but I think we've got to put it in, in context, though, Peter, because it's all very... It, I, I really appreciate what you're saying, and believe me, I, I really, really do. We do have to be careful who we call heroes and who we, you know, that, that we categorise things. How, where you put yourself in front of or out of camera shot is, is fucking unbelievable. I mean, that's what I'm getting yeah, at. See, is my, my mentality is like when I did the two attempted citizens' arrests mm. of President Robert Mugabe, mm. I was constantly thinking people inside Zimbabwe are being murdered, raped, and tortured mm. because they're standing up for freedom. I have a duty to do something and perhaps take some risks in order to help them, to support them, to show solidarity. So 
not about what they call white saviorism. It's about standing in solidarity and supporting people who are being oppressed. So, yeah, in the end, I was beaten unconscious by his bodyguards. Mm. But I'm able to think of everything in perspective by comparison to thousands, probably tens of thousands of Zimbabweans, mm. that was getting off lightly. The same with Russia, you know, when I went there to support, at the request of Russian activists, to support their battle to hold an LGBT pride parade. Oh God, yeah. I knew the risks, yeah. but I thought, well, these people there, these activists, they're taking the risk. They've asked me to come. They asked me to bring, you know, British and other international media to shine a spotlight on what is happening. If I can do that, that's a risk worth taking. You know, I've ended up with some minor brain and eye damage. Before that, you know, I got beaten up many times by neo-Nazis from the National Front, the BNP, Combat 18, um, you name it. All those far-right groups targeted me a lot in the 70s and 80s, and all the teeth in my mouth have been, or nearly all, not all, but nearly all the teeth in my mouth have been chipped and cracked and broken by these bashings. Yeah. Um, had to be all be reconstructed. Not a nice experience. But then I think of someone like Stephen Lawrence, he paid with his life. So what I've endured is nothing by comparison. Yeah. And I think you've, if you have that kind of perspective, it enables you to take the risks and the dangers and to put up with the consequences. Would you accept that you've become a role model? No. For I, who? <laughs> for, for anybody who wants to be a, 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 who wants to draw passion and be an activist, who, who wants to change the world that they live in. You are a role model, I think. Well, I don't see it that way, and no one's ever suggested that before, but that's very kind of you. Well, I mean, come on, um, it's, it's, it's true. I but, mean, like, you know, looking back to my own experience, you know, the black civil rights movement were my role model, and the suffragettes and the chartists and a few others as well. But, you know, I'd be very happy if some people could now look at my activism and see things that they can draw from in their own campaigning. It is, is now 50 years of human rights campaigning, and at times it's been very tough, dangerous and I have you know the injuries to bear witness to that but it's also been an incredible honor privilege a joy mm. um, a fantastic extraordinary experience to have to have worked with so many wonderful amazing heroic people in this country and around the world mm. who have really made some pretty fundamental changes so you know I, I think of you know people in apartheid South Africa, who, who many of them end up imprisoned, yeah. or if not imprisoned, beaten by the police. They never gave up. They kept on going. Yeah. And that sort, of, that sort of dogged mentality is something that I've got as well, you know? Yeah. I may be right, I may be wrong. I, I'm just following my conscience. Other people will judge whether I've done the right thing or not, but I'm doing what I believe to be right, and I'm determined to do it to the best of my ability to help bring about product, you know, positive change. And yeah. in my lifetime, I can see lots of positive changes mm. that I and many, many others have collectively helped bring about. Yeah. Well, we end it there, sadly, because I could just sit and chat for you for a while. <laughs> well, thank you very much for a very long, extended and wide-ranging interview. For people who are listening, please think about joining up with my Peter Tatchell Foundation, which is a small human rights NGO. Um, go and take a look at the website, which is petertatchell.org, petertatchellfoundation.org. If you want to, you can 
click on the join us button in the top right hand corner it's free uh, we'll send you regular you know once a week or so email bulletins and you'll be apprised of issues that perhaps a bit below the radar perhaps aren't being reported elsewhere um, we tend to do quite a lot of un quite unique out of the mainstream ki kind of issues and then if you are in a position to do so please think about making a donation uh, the subscription button is also on the top right hand corner yeah. uh, of the website homepage um, because we depend entirely on donations from well wishers to sustain the work we do we're too on the edge to get any kind of government or institutional funding yeah. uh, so we, we do depend on people who are sympathetic to take out a regular donation of three or five or whatever pounds a month yeah. uh, that gives us a sustained income to continue the work we do brilliant okay well, on that note, well, thanks very much, and hopefully we'll see you again. Thank you, and I'll leave you with my motto, which is, don't accept the world as it is, dream of what the world could be, and then help make it happen. High five. <laughs> very good. Everybody's oh, my God, I love that motto. What a great great sentiment what a great thing to end on there I, I, I mean that was a spirited conversation wasn't it that was some really full-on spirited chit chat i loved it absolutely he's, he's a total, total total legend absolutely no he just doesn't he, what i love about him is there's this massive sense of urgency you know calculated he doesn't make you know he doesn't go into things half-heartedly and, and foolishly and headstrong he, he really is calculated and very measured in what he does and the the, the organizations he gets involved with and it, indeed his own foundation everything that he does that's fantastic you know for the youth of today I mean crying out loud you know I, I think about sex education at school I, I mean I'm actually laughing thinking about it because it was so horrific all I remember is a science science teacher getting us to read out uh, about animals fucking in the wild and that was there that was sex ed you know gee i remember being really i remember picking my hand up going oh i'll read this out and then find out oh my god it's a lion with an erection oh my god it's one of the most hilarious moments of my life yeah so i did get a lot of it you, you probably you know not listening anymore so I'll, I'll i'll say um almost merry christmas and, a, and an almost happy new year we've got some amazing episodes coming up for you over this christmas period we've got two more we ram them in so you can binge to your heart's content over the christmas period look after yourself look look after yourself guys it's gonna be it's gonna be a funny old time around that dinner table at christmas but be uh be nice to your family members doesn't just fuck politics for, for Christmas you know and if it does come up just be I don't know compassionate listen to what they've got to say and hopefully they'll listen to what you've got to say <laughs> you know we're all family we can all get along um so yeah dogs to the left of me dogs to the right I've got one dog on my right another one on the left um they're looking gorgeous they're ready for Christmas and on that note I'll say hit us up on Twitter at Limehouse Pod if you want to give us a little bit of money on the old uh, Patreon website please do patreon.com forward slash the limehouse podcast it all goes a freaking long way so anyway look after yourself and i'll see you on the other side